Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Tina Eliasi Rod. Tina is a professor at Northeastern University. Tina, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you. We are going to jump into your presentation as an invited speaker at the I Still Can't Believe It's Not Better workshop. And we'll talk all about that workshop and what that's about. But before we do, I'd love to have you introduce yourself to our audience and share a little bit about your background. Great. Thank you. So I am a computer scientist by training. My uh, PhD dissertation was on theory refinement in artificial neural networks. I was one of the first people to work on personalized web searches. This is where we were training two artificial neural networks to learn what kind of hyperlinks you liked and what kind of web pages you liked. This was back before GPUs, before we had all this social (laughs) data available. And uh, after I got my PhD, I went and worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I did not want to go into academia. I thought academics were weird. (laughs) And there I had a chance to work on large-scale scientific simulation data. So we can't, for example, blow up nuclear weapons. So we simulate what would happen after such an explosion. And I was analyzing the outcome of those simulations, so building statistical models over them. And then 9-11 happened. And everybody was like, if we could have only connected the dots. (laughs) And that's where a lot of funding went into network science, web science, etc. And that's when my research shifted more to machine learning and data mining on graphs and networks. These are complex networks. And that's when I got interested in network science. So network science is an interdisciplinary field of a physicist from statistical mechanics to economists to social scientists to computer scientists, where we're interested in phenomena we see, both technical and natural, and we would like to represent them as complex networks and then build descriptive and predictive models of them. And so you can think of it as machine learning on graphs is what I do, but I really care about the graphs, (laughs) where they come from, how are they represented, what does that representation mean, and uh, the processes that generate them. Okay. I I often see network sciences fitting under like operations research historically and like logistics networks. Is that, am I thinking about the same thing? I don't think you're thinking about the same thing. Network science really, like if you think about it, It grew out of graph theory, uh, which obviously has been around since the 1700s. And then it really got a shot in the arm from somebody like Paul Erdős, right? We all know about the Erdős-Rainy random graphs. And then with the emergence of the web, the heavy-tailed or fat-tailed distributions that we see, the emergence properties of these complex networks, spreading processes on these complex networks. So like think about network epidemiology. I'm a core faculty member at the Network Science Institute at Northeastern University. And my colleague and the director of the Institute, Alessandro Vespigiani, is a world leader in network epidemiology and works with WHO and CDC in tracking the pandemic, for example, uh, looking at mobility networks, which of course are complex. 
Fantastic, fantastic. And so this workshop that you have been invited to present at at NeurIPS, the I still can't believe it's not better workshop. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Aaron um, Shine, uh, who's a postdoc of um, Dave Bly at Columbia, and others have organized uh, this workshop. This is the second series in the workshop. That's why the word still is in the title. <laughs> the first edition was at last year's at NeurIPS. And the idea is that researchers come up with these beautiful ideas that they think would work, but it doesn't. <laughs> and why don't these beautiful ideas work where we expect them to work? And so what are some examples of some of the types of ideas that are kind of raising this question for folks? Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about for the talk I'm going to be giving. I, as I said, I'm interested in complex um, networks. Complex networks are part of complex systems. And actually the theme of this year's Nobel Prize in physics was the study of complex systems. It was about climate science. And the person who won half of the prize, Georgia Parisi, is a complexity scientist who has done amazing work in this area. And so in my talk, I'm speaking of when we think about a complex system, think about your brain, for example, right? There are units, there are the neurons and they fire, there are connections, and how would you represent them? The majority of the work that you see, for example, in ML and graphs, they represent them as simple graphs. You have nodes, the relationships between them are dyadic. Then there's this whole other area in terms of topological data analysis that looks at simplicial complexes. They say, oh, no, I'm interested in more than dyadic relationships. For example, I want to know that Tina, Sam, and Bob all published papers together. If I, and if I represent this as a simple graph, I won't capture this, right? I can find out that Tina published a paper with Sam and Sam with Bob and Bob with Tina, but not all of it together. And... Simplicial complexes have their own assumptions, which is this downward closure, which any subset of that set also has the property you're interested in. And then there's also hypergraphs, right? Where you go from simplicial complexes to hypergraphs. Hypergraphs do not have that downward closure assumption. And if two nodes are not directly connected in a hyperedge, you don't know if that connection exists or not. And of course, when you go higher to these higher representations, as in you capture more of the phenomena of interest, the computation gets harder. What does the spectra of a hypergraph mean, for example, right? Versus I can tell you what the largest or the leading eigenvalue of the adjacency matrix of a graph means. It talks about questions I've been asking myself all day. <laughs> it's the path capacity. This is why, right, when we want to reduce the spread of an epidemic on a network, we cut the edges or the nodes that reduce the leading eigenvalue of the adjacency matrix or the non-backtracking matrix the most. Obviously, you can represent a simple graph in various ways. But the main takeaway is that there's no one perfect way <laughs> to represent a complex network. And depending on what decision you make, you kind of put yourself in a hole, right? It's like that this notion of, okay, I'm going to commit to this representation and that's it from now on, right? And I know we live in this era of representation learning, but if you think about all the work that's been done in deep learning, they're really good at things like images or sound, speech, text, and I know there's been a lot done on graph neural networks, but if you look at the work on graph neural networks, they're not looking at simplicial complex representations of these graphs, 
or there's some recent work on hypergraph representation, but not very much. And so I'm more interested in when you pick that representation, what does that mean? And just for your audience, one of the things is if I go from a hypergraph down to its simple graph representation, and then I go from that simple graph representation back to the hypergraph, I don't get the same hypergraph, right? So I lose it's information. It's not a reversible process. It's not a reversible process. And so is that is the idea that the ways that we're able to represent graphs in neural networks, they're overly constrained from the, the richness that you might want to express them as a mathematician? Yeah. In particular, actually, I'm even willing to go one level higher and say, if you think at large at machine learning people, and I'm one of them, we don't really question where the data came from. We don't really care about the phenomena underlying it, right? It's just, here's data. Here's a, ta here's a prediction task. Let's go, right? And perhaps for five minutes or 10 minutes, your algorithm is the best predictive algorithm on planet until the next person that comes in with their own method versus focusing on the phenomena that you're interested in, whether it's drug discovery, whether it's how the brain works, whether it's spread of a, of a virus on a network and thinking about how different representations of that data affect the downstream task and the, the output that you get. And also the fact that your data is not going to be complete because you're not omniscient, right? So part of my research has also been on, well, I know I'm not omniscient. I know my data is incomplete. How can I increase my observability? And so there are two ways of going about it. One is you can assume that, okay, my data is coming from a certain process and I now have some observations and I can use a method like expectation maximization to fill in the rest. Or I can actually go and collect more data. And this falls under like active exploration or active learning of uh, actually I have a budget and how do I spend that budget to increase my graph either for a specific task. For example, I want to bring in as many people who have a certain disease within my social network so I know how to better do interventions or just grow the network as much as possible because I want to be able to learn a better relational dependency between the nodes. Mm -hmm. And so tying back to the workshop topic, the argument is that if it's an argument at all, you're kind of supposing that the reason why we're not able to model complex systems is because we've kind of lost this connection to the generating process that is the source of our data. Exactly. And like when you talk with statistical mechanics folks, physicists, hardcore network scientists, they really care about uh, the processes uh, that are generating this data. So uh, in my lab, we've done work on, we've been examining a lot of these graph embedding methods, right? There's one out every other minute, it seems like, <laughs> right? And many of them fail on 14-14 interaction networks because they assume that your graph is going to be like a social network that's going to have a lot of triangles. And so one of the things that I would like to push uh, machine learning people, especially machine learning people who work on graphs, to at least when they pick their graphs that their data sets, right, the real world data sets, 
is to at least say which a spectrum these graphs fall in, right? The simplest thing would be I look at the degree distribution, right, of my graph, and I want to see if it's homogeneous or if it's heterogeneous, right? So most real-world networks are heterogeneous. You have a fat tail or a heavy tail. And then the other dimension would be how clustered is your graph, some notion of triangles, right? Now, of course, if my graph is random, and this is a unit test that most machine learning people don't do. Suppose I generate an erdos rainy graph, right? And your method does graph? an erdos rainy random graph. It's oftentimes called a GNP, like I have N nodes, and as nodes come in with probability P, they connect to each other. If I give you a graph that's random, your machine learning network should not do very well on it. The connections are random. It's a random relational dependency. So if it actually is learning something above and beyond that things are random, then it's like, wait, what? <laughs> right? What is going on? And then if, for example, the processes that are generating your graph are really simple, like it's all about preferential attachment, right? We all want to be friends with Beyonce, let's say. <laughs> then you can just use a heuristic because you know exactly what processes are generating it. Oftentimes, though, that is not the case. And for example, with social networks, we know what are the dominant processes. It's preferential attachment, right? Everybody wants to be connected to a star or a hub. And um, this notion of friends of friends are friends, right? Where we have a lot of triangles. But that doesn't hold in protein-protein interaction networks. And so the point you're making about social versus protein, protein networks and graph embeddings is the idea that if you train a model on social media, social network data, that that train model won't work in the protein case? Or is it deeper than that in the sense of if you develop techniques and algorithms, thinking about social network data, then those don't apply because of you've kind of built structural attachments to a particular type of data into the algorithms and, and architectures? It's more the second one. It's the assumptions of the model that they are, they're using, where they're saying, if you and I are close in the graph space, then you and I should also be close in this embedding space. And so if I don't have a lot of triangles, then I don't have these blobs in a way in my embedding space where I would be close to people. And then there's also a whole other issue about how the graph embedding methods, if you look at their objective functions, they have these hyperparameters, and I'm sure others have spoken to you about these hyperparameters, where depending on how you set them, this deep network architecture for graph embedding is just a calibrated PCA. Mm -hmm. So, which of mm -hmm. course then just say it's a calibrated PCA, which I'm <laughs> calibrating for, I need to get the edges correctly, the links that exist correctly, not the non-edges. So if I get a non-edge incorrectly, it's fine. But if I get an actual existing edge incorrectly, then I get a penalty for it. And so, yeah, and there's this disconnect again between the phenomena on their study, how the data was collected, how incomplete is your data, what is the representation you picked and what assumptions come with that and then what model assumptions you make, right? And so all of that affects how robust your machine learning algorithm is and how interpretable, for example, your results are and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. 
And so kind of taking a step back from the presentation, talk a little bit about your overall research and kind of how you craft a set of research around these questions that you're asking. What are some of the specific types of projects and papers that you you work on to dig into these issues? Yeah, so it's all over the place. So <laughs> as you can imagine, I think I have like 20 projects at this point. Oh, wow. um, so my day job is at this intersection of network science and, and machine learning and data mining. In my night job, I do also work on AI ethics, fair machine learning, and I'm trying to bring those two together. So for example, if you are LinkedIn and you want to have information access equality, how would you change your recommendation systems? And so one of the things that we've seen again is that people usually just focus on the structure of the network, the economic network, but information access equality really also depends on the information itself. Is it a simple contagion? Is it a complex contagion? Is it asymmetric transmission or is it symmetric? transmission between the different groups that you have. Can you give a specific example of how that plays out in an economic network like a LinkedIn? Yeah. So for example, there could be information that are transmitted more between a minority group. The minority group here, it's basically if I have, let's say, a million people in the economic graph a minority portion of them belong to one group and then I have a majority group, right? I have like the blue nodes and I have the red nodes. And then in terms of like asymmetric transmission, it's that the rate at which this information is propagated among the blue node and among the red nodes are different. And among each other, it's different. And so, for example, things that are usually cultural So information that's usually have something to do with culture are transmitted asymmetrically. Nowadays, when we are in these filter bubbles, there's a lot of asymmetric transmission of information. For us, the example about LinkedIn is about jobs, which actually links to, you may have heard about Mark Gronobiter's work about uh, the strength of weak ties, where this is back in the 50s that he ran this experiment that if you want to get a job, should you talk to your best friend? Uh, or should you talk to your acquaintance? And your acquaintance helps you more at getting a job than your best friend because your best friend has the same information as you have, which also talks about this notion that the transmission rate within your group is a lot higher than the transmission rate across your group. So those are some of the examples there. But a lot of the work that we're doing now is about adversarial machine learning on these kinds of networks. So in particular, diffusion on a network. So if I want to, let's say, infect a subgroup in a social network, how would I not be detected (laughs) as I go through to be able to get into that group and spread that information? And so most of these things are like bi-level optimization problems, or for example, If I'm on a cyber network and I want information from A to B to go through the path that I own, how would I do that? Like, how would I modify the network without being detected so that information from A to B goes through my particular path that I own, which is my particular routers that I own? And so those are some of the things that we're working on. My student who's graduating next week, Leo Torres, is working on higher order networks. So these are networks where we care about memory, 
That is, whenever I get an email from Bob, I send it to you. And so what are some anomalies here? He's about, so Tim Lorak is about to go to Oxford and is a, be a postdoc there. Uh, some of the work that was done in my lab that I'm really happy about, I've always been interested in how similar the two networks are. We call these um, graph distances because obviously measuring similarity or distance is very important <laughs> in machine learning. And so uh, my other student, Leo Torres, who's now a postdoc at Max Planck Institute for Mathematics for Sciences, looked at non-backtracking matrices. So you have probably heard of adjacency matrices, right? These are symmetric matrices where I have all the people as rows and all the people as columns if it's a social network. And then you can have it be binary, where if Bob is friends with Tina, there will be a one in that entry. Non-backtracking matrix is a much better matrix, bigger matrix. You have a 2M by 2M matrix, so M being the number of edges. So for every directionality of an edge, you have a row and a column. And you will have a 1 if you have a path that goes from A to B to C, and A and B are not the same. And so the reason the non-backtracking matrix is cool is because... There was this study um, that came out by Constantine and LaFont, who are a topologist, that said that if you can find the length spectrum of a graph, it uniquely identifies it up to isometry. It's two-core, uniquely identifies it up to isometry, and that isometry induces isomorphism. So if I can have a graph and I shave it down to its two-core, that is get rid of its leaves, we're talking about topology, so I can't deal with <laughs> trees, right? We only care about holes and cycles and topology. Okay. Then that is a very good signature for that graph. Sorry, you said some, the, was a term you used something length? The length spectrum. Length spectrum? The length spectrum of a, of a graph. It sounds like what you're describing is a, a technique, to use the term loosely, that kind of takes a fingerprint or a hash of a graph, and that can be used to compare it to other graphs. Yeah, you can think of it that way. Actually, the Constantine LaFont work wasn't on graphs. It was actually on just metric spaces. And so we spent a lot of time saying, okay, well, how can I take this result, this beautiful result from topology and use it on graphs? And so it took us a whole while to see, okay, well, how can I translate it to graphs and how can I compute it? Because when I tell you that the length spectrum of a graph uniquely identifies it up to isomorphism, which induces uh, up to isometry, which induces isomorphism, you must think to yourself, oh my God, this is an infinite mathematical construct. And it is an infinite mathematical construct. But I'm a computer scientist. How am I going to compute an infinite mathematical construct, right? So then the question is, how do you do that? And so that's where we found the non-backtracking matrix and how the trace of the non-backtracking matrix can tell us about the length spectrum of a graph. And then you can compare graphs. So a lot of Leo's work was about standing on the shoulder of topologists to compute uh, graph similarity uh, which is really cool because in particular, when then you look at the different generative graph models, like Kronecker graph models or Erdős-Rényi graph models, then you can see the space that they occupy in this spectrum of the not backtracking matrix. So nerdy math stuff, which is very <laughs> cool. <laughs> I obviously have not had enough coffee today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I you know I have this beautiful. You've got to see when you talk about topology, you need pictures. That's the that is which true. doesn't translate to radio. That is true. And so is that the reason why it's 
the problem you described is an infinite problem computationally just because you have so many permutations of your graph, even for small, relatively small graphs? Yeah, because basically, so here's one easy way of describing what the length spec term for a graph is. So I give you a graph for every node. What you have to do is you have to find all the closed walks that start and end at that particular node. And then what you do is you create these groups for these closed walks and you call these groups equivalence classes based on the fact that these walks only differ by their tree-like parts. Again, we don't like trees. And then from each equivalence class, you pick the closed walk with the shortest length. And that becomes your fundamental group. These are terminology from topology. And then the length of the closed walks in the fundamental group tells you about the length spectra. Now, the reason it's computationally very difficult is that I have to do this for every node and I have to find all the closed walks, including the complex closed walks. That is, I can go over and over and over the same loop. And so that's why we, you know, it was, it was an interesting year with Leo coming to my office and saying, look how beautiful this theorem is. And me saying, how are we going to compute it <laughs> until we found them, the beautiful mathematical trick that actually worked. <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I've been exposed to some of this previously. The, what comes to mind are conversations with Max Welling about like eigen equivalents of graphs and things like that. Sounds like you're having a lot of fun with it, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's really fun. And also, like, for example, again, going back to, I know we want to get away from the pandemic, but people have thought about epidemics on complex networks for a very long time. And as I was saying, the leading eigenvalue of uh, the adjacency matrix is a good integrator of spread on a network. This is conditioning on that you cannot change the virus, that the strength of the virus is, is the same. But like if you look at the non-backtracking matrix, which is a much bigger matrix, and it's also not symmetric, so you're going to have to deal with imaginary values, which are fun by themselves. But the leading eigenvalue of the non-backtracking matrix is it even a better approximation of the spread on a network and being able to control the spread. And so then you get into some of the, again, the computational issues. But the core areas that I'm interested in is when algorithms work and why. Right. And that's why this notion of why, how, and when, which includes like what's the phenomena, how the data is being extracted, how complete is your data, how you're representing it, what algorithm are you using, what assumptions it makes, and when would I expect it to fall down the cliff? Right. If it doesn't have enough triangles, what does it mean if it doesn't have enough triangles to bring some rigor in that? Because a lot of the machine learning papers, unfortunately, like they're like, oh, and we ran it on these 20 different data sets and it beats everything. It's like, how did you pick those 20 different data sets? <laughs> right? It's right. like, I would like to know how much of the space of the phenomena that you, that you care about, they actually cover. And your particular approach there is looking at it from a theory perspective, like you're trying to come up with closed form bounds and guarantees or more from an applied or empirical perspective? We're looking at both of them. So for example, with the targeted diffusion that I was saying, suppose you have a social network and you are the adversary and you want to introduce a virus to a particular subgroup, there we can have bounds in terms of if you design your network this way, then the adversary has to spend at least this much budget. So then you can design your network 
this is in a way intervention, you can design the network so that certain actors cannot attack it, right? That you need a lot of budget to do what you want to do. And then empirically, it's more like, okay, you know, I can create, for example, a 2D plot in terms of property of your degree distribution, homogeneous to heterogeneous, and how modular your network is, create a whole bunch of synthetic graphs. There are lots and lots of these generative random models of graphs, like Erdős-Rényi, Barabási-Albert, Kronecker graph, etc., block two level Erdős-Rényi, which completely fill the space, right? Fill the space and see how well your algorithm does. And then you can also run it on real-world graphs. On real-world graphs, you can also measure these properties. So then you can say, oh, my Quora data set falls here, right? And my Enron email data sets fall here, and so on and so forth. Now, these are just two properties. There are lots of other properties that one can measure on a network. But these two typically are enough to distinguish between different networks. And again, if your algorithm is doing extremely well on a random graph, yeah. That's a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because by definition, the connections are random. Like, what is it learning? Yeah, yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So the focus of your work is on graphs because you're, you're interested in these complex networks. The broader context for your talk and what we're discussing, like why algorithms don't work is, is much broader than, than graphs. For someone who might not be working on, on graphs and the specific example of triangles doesn't necessarily apply to, to what they're doing. Like how should uh, data scientists in industry or a researcher or research scientist not working on graph think about the kind of issues that you're raising and, and their work in the context of these issues? What are the key takeaways? Yeah. So the big thing is think about the phenomena that you are trying to predict. Usually there's some prediction algorithm. There's some prediction tasks that they care about, risk assessment for whatever, right? So what is that phenomena? Is it, for example, predicting recidivism? If it is predicting whether somebody will commit a crime when they're out, then you need to know about the context, Right. So if, for example, you're working on data from Florida and you want to build a risk assessment model about people who have been arrested in Florida, then you should know that when people are arrested, they can't renew their license. Right. And so if you're out and you haven't renewed your license because you didn't have time and you get stopped, it breaks the condition of your bail. Right. Or so you really need to know the phenomena itself. So study the phenomena, right? This is, in fact, there's the Conway diagram, Venn diagram, right? You really need to know about the area that you're interested in. Um, Then it's about how you're representing it, right? That's the math and stats circle in that Venn diagram, the famous data science, what is data science Venn diagram. And so how are you representing it? How is the data being collected? There's a really um, nice website that your listeners can go to if they type in Google Um, the library of missing data sets, right? So data is political, like what type of data are you getting? How incomplete it is? How are you representing it? Like usually computer scientists, we don't deal well with time, 
because do you want it fast or do you want it good? And you want it fast, so we're going to discretize it, right? And this discretization of time, Monday's data, Tuesday's data, Wednesday's data, why Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right? So there are these decisions that you're making that will affect down the line the outcome that you're getting. And then what model do you pick, right? There's a lot of, there's certain models make certain assumptions, certain independence assumptions, Sometimes it's okay. For example, in, in natural language processing, a lot of the models used to assume bag a word, right? So ordering does not matter. And oftentimes it did very well, <laughs> right? So there are certain assumptions that you, your model makes that are fine, but certain ones that it's not fine and context really matters. And so there's some of that that you need to care about. And then also the outcome, right? Does the outcome even make sense? We usually just look at it in terms of like, a, like quantitative measures, we should look at it in terms of qualitative measures as well, especially now that our work has impact in real life, right? Would you want your algorithm to be used on you? That's a good question to start with. Yeah. When I ask this question among my computer science colleagues, nobody raises their hand. I don't know why, <laughs> especially the machine learning people, machine learning and data mining people. I'm like, who would like their algorithm to be used on them? Nobody raises their hand. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tina, thanks so much for joining us to share a bit about what you're working on in your workshop talk at NURPS. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. And just the one closing argument is everything is a network. You just don't see it right. So if you don't see a network or a graph, call me <laughs> or text me and I will, you know, I will tell you that there is a network behind it. <laughs> That's awesome. Love it. Love it. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.